0: Once came another man. style of tall. Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played at very high standards. Young, a superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. When you say best, that's hard to define. competition was extremely Welcome to the chess underground. The eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical knowledge. The we here. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, perhaps Merry Christmas by now, and God willing, Happy New Year. Would be great to get out of 2021 already, alas, we will have to wait a few more days. This is the Chess Underground. I am your host, Pete Karyanis, here for our year-end wrap-up, December 2020 episode, and what a year. It has been this year. You know, the way it works uh, when you're, well, at least the way I chose to set it up when I began this podcast, I had had to do some thinking and some soul searching about how it would look and how it would sound and what we were going to talk about. And I settled on the idea of having yearly themes for the show you know chess is chess is an interesting art form or sport or science or uh, competition where it's very visual you know you you have to visualize variations you have to see the pieces it's very tactile you know Uh, there's nothing quite like the feel of a wooden chess piece in your hands you know nice weighted Staunton wouldn't chess piece, not a sponsor, <laughs> although Staunton if you're out there. But when you try to translate that to the medium of the podcast, how do you do it? Where do you begin? And I came up with the idea of having themes for each each year to sort of guide where I would take chess that year and I also remembered back to my days studying English uh, literature in college, and I thought it might be interesting to have character studies as well. You know, each each show, or not, not every show necessarily, but as many as possible, invite a personality onto the show to sit down and speak with me, and treat it almost like you know, a short story, a character study short story, although, of course, you know, chess themed and related to our, our world, our subculture. So the first year I did Americana and I interviewed a lot of um, local organizers, players who had some experience in the world of American chess that was worth chronicling, I thought. And the second year, this year, I decided in advance, you know, I decided the theme for 2020 roughly in mid November of 2019. In mid November of 2019, the entire world was a very different place than it is right now. Nobody, of course, could have seen coming what came, you know, the COVID pandemic and all of the things that it would influence and affect in our lives. And the theme that I picked and started scheduling guests and started plotting out what my year of podcasts would look like, the theme that I picked in November of 2019 for the year 2020 was tournament life. So for this year, I picked tournament life. And I had something in mind last fall that was vastly different than what I got. I picked the name Tournament Life, you know, because of the classic US Chess Tournament Life, Tournament Life Area, Tournament Life Announcements. Longtime members of US Chess are so familiar with the phrase Tournament Life, finding a tournament, that I felt it would ring almost a nostalgic, maybe a bit sentimental bell with the listener who knew where I was coming from and who was familiar with that phrase. And I really envisioned... Getting into the nitty gritty of tournament life, possibly even recording a show live from a tournament somewhere and digging deep into what life was like at a tournament, which I myself am no stranger to. I've played, I I don't even know, I've lost count. At, At last look, it was over 450, I think over 500 now rated tournaments in my life, which is a lot And I wanted to introduce the listener to what that was like. Many of you already know. Many of you have a taste of that. Many of you are grizzled veterans like myself. And what would tournament life entail? That's what I had in mind. You know, as they say, the best laid plans, right? What I got was something very different. And... That's not necessarily a bad thing. I still remember actually my, my first ever rated event. I was a little kid growing up in Florida. I was, I was five years old. And in Florida, as probably isn't too hard to figure out, swimming is incredibly popular. Uh, it's, a, it's a big sport. Definitely was in the, in the late 1980s when this little miniature story is set all the kids participated in it. All the all the pools were open year round. We had a neighborhood pool, we had a neighbor's pool, you know, private pools. You could swim anywhere and everywhere. you could go down to the ocean and hop in the ocean and do a mile swim for your Boy Scout badge. It was just an incredibly popular activity, and I loved it. I was huge into swimming. I, was, I loved the breaststroke and I love freestyle were my two favorites. could never quite get the butterfly. I was a, very terrible at that one. Um, and the backstroke, I like that too, but I remember my first tournament because it was right after a morning swim meet and my dad had entered into it in advance. It was being held at the same country club that the swim meet was at. So my dad really wanted me to play. I really wanted to swim and we made a compromise that I would do both. So here I am hopping out of the pool, you know, after my backstroke run or whatever it was, sopping wet, walking over to the cabana and toweling off and throwing on a T-shirt and, and still dripping, walking into the country club, you know, into one of the back community rooms and... Finding my name and finding my board and sitting down, you know, still dripping in the chair. And I remember being incredibly cold because in Florida, everything indoors is very aggressively air conditioned. And I played. And that was my first ever rated tournament. Doesn't even show up in my MSA history because for those of you who, who follow the uschess.org MSA records, they only go back to 1992 and that was 1988. I think a a paper copy of that tournament cross table still exists somewhere in our office in Crossville, Tennessee. I could go and look and see exactly how I did. I remember kind of how I did, but mostly I remember being wet and cold and playing a chess tournament as a five-year-old kid. And I guess when I came up with the theme for this year, last November, stories like that are... Sort of what I had in mind, you know. What does tournament life look like from all angles, from every angle? What stories do we hold on to? You know, I think of my good friend, Tim Just. um, Many of you probably know. Longtime tournament director from my home state of Illinois. Fantastic human being. And wrote a really funny book called My Opponent is Eating a Donut. About stories like that. That you encounter at a tournament. Your opponent complaining to you as the Chief TD that his opponent is eating a donut. How dare he during this game. But this year was very different. And I guess my first clue as to just how different things were going to be, was the cancellation of the candidates tournament. You know, those those of you who listened last spring remember that I did a preview of the coming 2020 candidates tournament where I went through each player, their matchups with other players, the openings that they got into. I looked at what we might expect in terms of results and gave a very in-depth preview of the forthcoming candidates tournament, which of course was canceled at the halfway mark due to COVID. So this should have been a sign of what was coming. Uh, I had guests lined up who, instead of talking about the in-person tournament that they were going to run, we discussed the online event that they were hosting or the non-event that they were hosting. Or we looked backwards to a time when none of this was going on. You know, the net result, I began to realize sometime over the summer, when I was speaking with Eric Vigil, who's become a yearly guest, I, I love speaking with Eric about an, an over the board tournament he was running in the middle of the pandemic. It was an eight player round robin state championship event. And I guarantee it was the first time in the 100 plus year history of the Iowa state championship that the, the participants were required to wear a mask. And social distance and, you know, the the directors were cleaning the pieces vigorously in between the rounds. I began to realize sometime over the summer that, and it's not just me, it wasn't, it wasn't just the chess underground or myself, but all of us right now are chronicling something very unique. You know, I mean, thank you captain obvious right but we are we are chronicling something that i think is more than just unique it is going to change the way we do things it is going to change our lives as we know it i, I don't know if there is a going back to normal after this and i and i think that's the same for tournament life too you know will we ultimately return to Large World Open, Chicago Open, New York State Open, all in one room of a hotel, probably. At some point in the future, we probably will get back to that, is my guess. I don't know when that will be. I don't know how long it will take. I don't know if all of the players who traveled to those events still will. But at some point, I do think we'll get back there. But in the meantime, you know, we have what we have and and we are where we are. And those events are not happening. They're happening online, you know, with reduced numbers in, in this very weird, bizarre virtual universe where our kids go to school, where we conduct business, where we check in with our parents and grandparents, this very strange virtual space where we play chess and we have our tournament lives right now. Our tournament lives with two cameras on us and interruptions. <laughs> I'll never forget. I, I was watching a tournament where a player, you know, was was focusing in a critical position, and his, it was a, it was a rated event, and his daughter just walked into the room and started talking to him. You know, the, uh, she must have been maybe second, third grade. And that—that that is tournament life right now. You know, this movement, forced movement, from the personal to the very, very, very impersonal, sitting at a desk behind a computer screen. You know, the tactile has gone from the wooden Staunton piece to your mouse or your touchpad or your iPad, your smart device, drag and drop, you know, click and click instead of pick the piece up, you know, the weighted piece. It's just one of those many things, you know, those many adaptations that we have made as humans to this pandemic, to this year. And the chess, the chess, the chess community in the chess world has had one of the easiest or easier transitions, I think, you know, out of all, out of all the sports, out of all the games, because of what we are and, and what our game is. You know, when I first got into chess, one of the things that attracted me to it so much was that it was a lifelong game, you know? You can play it as a kid, you can play it as a high schooler, you can play it when you're in college, you can play it as an adult, you can play it as a retiree, you can play it as a senior citizen, you can play it in the nursing home. It truly is a game for life. And it, it it's universal in that way. And that's a beautiful thing about it. And you can even play it from a thousand miles away on a computer screen. You know, I remember some of the top level events, you know, seeing Ding Li Ren play from, from China in the middle of the night, his time, you know, exhausted uh, as the event is, is, of course, going on in Europe in the middle of the day. And these are players playing in the same tournament, but, but not really, right? They're just really different circumstances, you know, to, to have to reschedule and reorganize your life. Such that here I am in, in Beijing or wherever wherever Ding is playing from in China at 3 AM, trying to play in the same tournament that's going on in, in Europe, you know, at 2 p.m. or I'm sure the fact checkers out there can correct me on the the time difference. But that's tournament life right now. That's what you have to do to play. I got a text from longtime friend and who has now gotten back into chess. We used to travel to tournaments all the time together. His name's Larry and we would drive. We both actually at the time hated flying and I've since gotten over that. I think Larry has too. We would drive from our homes in Illinois and I was going to school in Iowa. All the way across the country, you know, through Nebraska, that just long, boring (laughs) nothingness of Nebraska, Colorado, the mountains, Utah, you know, the painted scenery and the plateaus and mesas and all that good stuff down into Arizona, the red of Arizona. And finally, Nevada, We we would drive all the way out there for the national open. It took us two days to get out there every year. I got a text from him a couple weeks ago. His sons, he has He has five kids, his sons got back into chess before the pandemic, or they got into chess before the pandemic, which got him back into chess because his kids were playing. And I had been helping him a bit, you know, just making some book suggestions, going through a game here and there. I got a text from him a few weeks ago about how, you know, his he was very upset and sad that his boys, their interest in the game had fallen off. They just, they couldn't play on the computer anymore. They didn't like it. And I thought that was just, you know, so sad. I, I think about the kids, you know, spending hours a day on a Zoom call. And then do you re- do you really want to do more, you know, to, to play a game? And then he also included in our group thread, we have a group thread going for a fantasy football league, but Almost everybody in that thread is also a chess player, and most of them played on our grade school chess team. That's how deep this this league goes. We've, We've been on the same chess team and in the same fantasy football league for about 25 years. And the text was a link to a cross table from a tournament in 1995, the Illinois State Grade School Championship. And it was fun to go back and find all our names. One of the people in the text thread actually won the championship that year. Henry Goetz, who was also on the show um, last year, pre-COVID. And I thought about, you know, the difference between playing in a grade school tournament in 1995 and playing in an online Scholastic event in 2020, a brave new world that we have found ourselves in. There is a there is a rainbow, you know. There is a silver lining to this story. Larry did ultimately find some in-person events in the Phoenix area to take his his kids to and play. But they're all wearing masks. They're all socially distanced. They limit the number of total players. And this is the tournament life of 2020 that, that we are recording, that we are documenting. And it's not just us. It's not just the chess world. You know, Every industry, every news piece we read is documenting what, what life is like during this time. My wife bought a subscription to uh, just just the Sunday paper of uh, the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times. And uh, every week we get, we get them. The first week I actually ran the paper over with my car as I was getting it out to take the garbage out because I didn't even know it was going to be there. So we have a smashed copy of the New York Times. She ordered these just to keep a physical record of what was happening. And so now, you know, every week we have, we have our little filing cabinet and we bring the paper in, we check out the cartoons if we want to and whatever else we may want to look at. And then we file it away. Someday, you know, to show to our 10-month-old, this is what was going on. very recently the united states championship online united states championship online qualifier uscoq concluded and this was an event that i had worked on very closely over the summer to get set up and to get prepared and if you if you're a fan of the show and you listen to the november podcast you heard all about it and it was very exciting you know something like this had never been done before And it was forced, it was brought on by the pandemic. We canceled the US Open, which was scheduled for uh, August, as it always is in St. Louis this year. I was really looking forward to attending that one. But the US Open confers a championship spot. We had to figure out what to do with that spot. So we came up with the idea of an online qualifier, which we staggered into tiers. It was open to everyone. There were side events, really fun time. The final eight-player round-robin had seven grandmasters. I think almost all of them from, you would find, an, you know, in the top 100 list, you would find, in fact, even in the top 30 in the U.S. rating-wise, or very close. Um, and it had one international master, Christopher Yu, who I believe celebrated his 14th birthday during the tournament, one of the Saturday rounds turned fourteen. And for most of the tournament, Christopher was just dominating the event, like playing extremely well. Fantastic to watch him play. And I was excited to be able to observe some of the rounds and and watch the stream and replay the games. But Christopher this year is not going to have a chance to get his third and final GM Norm and his Grandmaster title and to, you know, be in the record books. You know, I don't know if he... I, I certainly don't think he would be the youngest American Grandmaster of all time, but he would have come close. Would have been on the list. And instead, you know, he's playing with two cameras pointed at him and bathroom breaks that were predetermined before the event, very specific rules about how to do it, what to do, fair play measures, just to make sure everything's up on the up and up for all the players. And it's important to document that and remember what we did, why we did it, how we did it. Unfortunately, Christopher lost in an Armageddon playoff to Grandmaster Alex Lenderman. Unfortunately for Christopher, congratulations, of course, to Alexander. Very well fought event. And Alexander will represent uh, the qualifier in the U.S. championship. He receives that nomination. I was called, well, first emailed, then called, by the Wall Street Journal in November this year about, and I thought, oh, you know, this is fantastic. You know, a a reputable paper, a really high-end, well-established news source, wants to talk about chess. Now, of course, for those of you who have not been living under a rock for the past few months, you might remember that in November, something fairly significant happened in the chess world. The Queen's Gambit came out on Netflix. And... Made chess cool, you know? We had this sensational lead actress played a intriguing character, Beth Harmon. And all of a sudden, chess was like this cool underground, bam, dropped it underground in there, game played by uh, starving artists in New York and um, powerful Russians in the Soviet Union, All across the globe, you know, under the neon lights of Las Vegas, which is still true, of course. It's a very romantic version of what chess was and what chess is. Which, in a lot of ways, was spot on. Like, just nailed it. That was, you know, tournament life pre-2020. So I got a call from the Wall Street Journal. And they wanted to talk to me. They had some questions about, about I guess the chess boom and, the, and chess moving online. And I spoke with uh, the reporter. I gave me a call, and I was a little surprised that the direction he wanted to go, where he wanted, what he wanted to discuss for the article, was actually cheating. How do you stop it? How prevalent is it? What have we done to deal with it, to prevent it, to identify cheating? How do you differentiate between somebody who's not playing fairly and somebody who's just playing really well? You know, somebody who's just a, wow, they have improved. You know, I used to be a chess coach, and I can tell you, you give an 11-year-old kid 10 months and they're real interested in the game... They're going to get a lot better in those 10 months. And right now, all across the country in the United States, we have a lot of 11-year-old kids who are very interested in chess, and they have not played a rated game in 10 months. You know, if they sit down tomorrow in a chess.com tournament or an ICC tournament, and they play way above their skill, are they playing fairly? I mean, again, I can tell you as a coach, those kids, it's just sometimes miraculous to watch how fast and how quickly they can improve in such a shortened amount of time. And what about when they're trapped indoors with nothing else to do but this game that they're interested in and have all these resources too that we've never had that I didn't have as a kid growing up. All these online resources and video libraries and databases and computer engines to train with. What's a realistic expectation of that player's skill? So I got this call and I spoke to the guy for 40 minutes, had a very nice conversation, Uh, just walked through what we as an organization at US Chess had done. As many of you know, we tasked a team of experts, um, leaders in their field, statisticians, mathematicians, doctors, to review the fair play methodology of various online platforms and to make a recommendation as to whether or not to endorse those fair play algorithms and why or why not, you know, what were their shortcomings what were their strengths and getting that, you know, sort of look behind the scenes there with them um, was, was pretty cool for starters. Cool is a word I think I can use. And it was I guess I guess the best word to drop here would be reassuring. You know, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, amongst a lot of players regarding not only, man, if I play on the computer, is my opponent going to be cheating? You know, how am I going to know? I've talked to so many players who won't even play online because they just think everybody's cheating. It's everywhere. And... Even others who are like, I'm not going to play online, you know, I'm, I'm going to get accused of doing something I didn't do. I think that happens. I think all of, all of those things happen. I think, you know, players who don't want to play fairly are going to find a way not to. I think there are extreme cases, very rare, like one in 10 billion. I don't even know what number to put there, so I'm putting a gigantic one to give you an indication of how rare I think this is. But there probably are extremely rare cases where someone just played the game of their life, you know. And, you know, whatever, got unfairly accused of something. I think that happens almost never, though. But I thought about, you know, the chess boom that's happening right now, and people are trapped inside, and we have all these other things to deal with. And here's the Wall Street Journal calling to talk to me, you know, not necessarily about Beth Harmon or the memberships we have or how we've made this transition, but they want to talk about fair play and cheating. And what are we doing? How is it happening? What steps are being taken? It reminded me of this article that I wrote in 2005. I was a senior in college. And at the time, I loved to write about chess. I still do. I love to write about chess. It's probably one of my favorite activities to do, like period. Period. But I was writing all the time back then. I had more time for it. And I wrote for the Iowa on Passant every, every issue I would submit something. I wrote for the Oklahoma Chess Quarterly. I made my own chess blog called The Chess Underground, which is where the show gets its title from. It no longer exists. You know, I shed a tear for that. I came up with my own cool little e-zine that I published. Um, I just, you know, I was really into it. And one of the things that I wrote for was the Illinois Chess Bulletin. And I published an article in 2005 where the the article is told in like little, uh, almost almost vignettes, although they're chopped up and sometimes a vignette is only like two, three sentences. And then we come back later in the story and there's two or three more sentences. But there was one part of the vignette that was rather lengthy. And at the time in 2005, uh, I kind of had a lot of interest and... um, You know, I was a senior on campus, I was branching out and trying new things and seeing where my interests would lead me. And I'd like to just read to you this section from that article. So this is the, um, it's actually the May 2006 Illinois Chess Bulletin, although the activity as described here happened in 2005. This semester I started learning a new game, Go. It's a territory game that is wildly popular in Asia and terribly complicated. I'm a hobbyist. I learned to pass the time to enjoy the mental exercise. But what struck me most was the aura surrounding the game. I actually took it far enough to attend a tournament, which truly stressed the difference between Go and chess. The Go players and every Go player I have ever met has exemplified this spirit. View the experience of playing Go As a sort of, quote, community of knowledge and appreciation, end quote. I played a few games online on the Kasaito Go server. They're all long time controls, say 20 minutes minimum. And every opponent that proves stronger than you offers to review the game and illuminate your mistakes. It is unlike chess, where especially in an online forum, but equally in a club setting, blitz and victory rule the day. The attitude is contagious, the attitude of Go players, I meant. After a few months, I found myself reviewing mistakes of absolute beginners. At the tournament I went to, at a bookstore on the second story of Iowa City, I actually witnessed experienced Go veterans, known as one-Dons or two-Dons or higher, pausing the clock and explaining to weaker opponents why they should not continue as they did before allowing that opponent a take-back in a rated game and restarting their timer. Madness! Yet, two weeks after the tourney, I found myself sitting in the Go Club booth at Spring Club Fest, right next to the chess club, handing out interactive computer software, free Go sets, beginner and intro Go books, and other various equipment. Now think about that. Think about the final round of a Chicago Open, let's say. You know, imagine a GM pausing the clock, explaining the mistake, rewinding the position, restarting the clock. I don't even think that's allowed in our rules. So, tournament life, you know, tournament life. I like that idea of a community of knowledge. You know, we have this, this game, this palette called chess and we are a community where we're trying to figure this out, right? I mean, that's, that's what the game really is. Yes. We want to compete and yes, we want to get titles and we want to get prizes and we want to get giant plastic things called trophies. But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to figure this game out and play it well and make a connection and, I don't know, learn something, enjoy it. It's the journey, not the destination, right? Also, last year, I did a lot of stuff last November. I keep talking about last November. This is another thing I did last November. Last fall, U.S. Chess sent me down to Mississippi. And I was attending a workshop for school teachers to teach them how to teach the game of chess. And I wrote a a piece about it for Chess Life that was published in June of 2020. I had no idea that it was going to be published seven months after I wrote it, but the timing actually turned out to be perfect. And if you go and check out the June 2020 Chess Life, yes, I'm going to plug myself here. Go check it out. Go read it, please. You'll see what I mean. If you think about what was happening in the United States, in this country, in June this year, and go read that article. It was almost just a... a, a a meant-to-be coincidence that that it was published at that time. Anyway, where I'm going with this, at the end of that article, I wrap it up, I bring it all together, I tell a story about my daughter. Last year, last December, for this very podcast that you are hearing right now, I was doing some volume testing and some, some random tests with my recording device, and my daughter was helping me out, you know, just saying random stuff. And we'd go across the room. We'd try different areas to try to get the best quality and the best recording. And she asked if she could interview me. And I said, sure, you know, let's have fun. She wanted to do it for fun. And she actually asked some great questions, one of which, and you can read this in the article too. One of which was, why do you, you know, what keeps you coming back to chess? I don't remember the exact words she used, but Why do you still play chess after all these years, Dad? You know? Why? You know, and I I, I thought about that from her eyes for a minute. You know, how many tournaments have I gone to? You know, I, I don't play that much anymore, but all the clubs and... Doesn't it get old, right? Like, come on, Dad. I used to play a game two years ago when I, you know, on my iPad. It's boring now. Why do you keep playing? And I told her this little anecdote about when I traveled to Ecuador with the U S Pan American team also in 2019 and how after all the games were done in the lobby downstairs, a lot of the coaches from the other countries would gather and just start playing blitz at nighttime. Um, And most of us, you know, only, only knew a very little bit about the other coaches' language. Uh, you know, we had Spanish, we had Portuguese, we had English. But there was such this sense of fun and community just because we could share the game, right? We could share the moves of the game, we could share the experience of the game. And I told her that anecdote and I said, you know, so that's what it is. It's making those connections and being able to sit across from somebody even if you can't really say anything to them that they'll comprehend because you don't even you don't even share the same language there's a barrier you can still share something with them over the chessboard and she said so it's it's the other people then it's it's people that keeps you playing and i said yeah making that connection people and i think Someday, maybe pretty soon, who knows, we'll be able to get back to that. And and my hope, maybe this is just a naive, sentimental, ridiculous Christmas holiday season hope. My hope is that whenever we do, maybe we'll have learned something. Or maybe something in our very chest DNA will have changed a little bit, and we will realize how sacred that is, to be able to sit across the board from someone and play a game of chess. Period, full stop. To be able to do that again. And maybe, just maybe ever so slightly, we'll think about this experience And, you know, maybe we won't even think about it. Maybe it'll just be subconscious. And we'll start to move towards what I described about Go. We'll start to move towards an understanding based on community instead of competition. I think that's a good thing. Some of you may disagree. Maybe chess is a fight after all. Maybe this is just a hopeful Christmas story-esque, you know, Santa narrative. Where everything is uh, sugar plums and gumdrops and snowflakes and not real in the end. anyway thank you all for listening this has been the last 2020 installment of the chess underground and i wish you all a wonderful holiday season i hope you stay safe hope you enjoy yourselves i hope you play some chess i hope you find some time to relax and to do all the little important things that make the light at the end of the tunnel. Somebody so welcome. A tactical struggle. You that, that's hard to Thank you for listening to The Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. US Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Carianos.